Welcome to Virtual Student Experiences, where we inspire students to aspire. For more information, please check out our website at www.virtualstudentexperiences.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Virtual Student Experiences Season 2. Today's webinar will focus on mechanical engineering. If you guys are new to our program, Virtual Student Experiences is a pro bono initiative spearheaded for students by students. And we at Virtual Student Experiences want to be the inspiration for aspiration. Our goal is to give students around the world an opportunity to hear from professionals in their career industry of interest in a friendly and casual setting. And if you know exactly what you want to do in the future, we at VC want to encourage, allow, and connect you with professionals. Their VAC students are given the chance to decide if their career choice fits their personality, skills, and overall interests. Through VSC, you'll be able to hear from a wide variety of guests in a wide variety of seniority levels. And to find out more information and to sign up to be notified about other webinars, you guys can visit our website at www.virtualstudentexperiences.com. But before we get started, I just want to let you all know how this is going to work. Firstly, I'm going to be asking our guest professional that I'll introduce in a second a series of base knowledge questions so that you can get a good idea of who he is and what he does. And if at any time you guys think of a question, feel free to post it in the Q&A module and we'll get to it in the later part of the webinar. We highly recommend that you guys ask questions during this webinar because it's a really good opportunity to get an answer right here, right now, instead of reading about it later on the internet. And just real quick, introducing our VSC core team of volunteers, we have Beckett, Gabby, and Jonathan. And for our guest professional today, we have Mr. Epstein. Mr. Epstein began his journey at Clemson University where he earned his bachelor's in mechanical engineering. He then graduated from UNC Business School where he earned his master's in business administration and management. And with his commercial pilot certification given to him by the FAA, open water division certification presented to him by Scuba Schools International, and many more, Mr. Epstein has landed many jobs which fall under the category of mechanical and aeronautical engineering. He has gained experience at coveted companies such as Lockheed and Martin Aeronautics, Parker Airspace, Champion Airspace, and Icon Aircraft. He also now serves as the United States Marine Air Corps MV-22 pilot. So thank you so much for joining us here today, Mr. Epstein. Do you want to just hop right into your presentation? Yeah, sure. So uh, good afternoon. My name is Ross Epstein, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to invite me to be a part of this. I think it's a very cool initiative, what you're doing, and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. So I don't want to take up too much of, of your opportunity to ask questions, but I just kind of wanted to give you a brief background of who I am and, uh, and, and put, put some pictures to the things that I've been a part of. So as, as you said, I'm, uh, I went to Clemson University, as you can see on the screen. Um, it's in upstate South Carolina. I majored in mechanical engineering. And just out of college, I went to work for um, Champion Aerospace, which is item number one here. Uh, Champion Aerospace is a, it's a pretty, it's a company that's been around a lot of, a long time and they do ignition systems for aircraft. So for piston aircraft, piston driven engines, you have the magnetos, spark plugs, those systems. And then for the turbine engines, you have exciter boxes and igniters. And so I spent about a, a year or so, a year and some change working there. And I was chasing the military, was trying to get in to be a pilot in the, in the Marine Corps. And in the process, I decided I'd like to try a different, uh, a different position. And I, was, I then went to Icon Aircraft. And uh, Icon Aircraft was, at the time, they were out of Tehachapi, California, um, in the high desert. And as you can see there, the aircraft that we were working on is a light sport amphibious airplane. It was, it was a brand new product that the company was bringing, bringing uh, 
to market. So it was the entire aircraft had to be designed as well as the manufacturing process associated with it to build it. So it was very, very exciting. And I was lucky enough to be a part of that early on as a young engineer. It's a, it's a unique opportunity that most engineers don't get to see because they often um, fall into programs that are very regimented, well-defined and some of the creativity, you don't have the opportunity to be as creative in those roles. So, like I said, it's a light sport aircraft. So it's a it's a it doesn't fall in the same categories of as uh, normal Part 30 or uh, other aircraft. It's a it's a sport aircraft. It's for fun, and um, it's an amphibious plane. So it lands on the water. It's a great great aircraft to be a part of. Great program. And then from there, I went to uh, I joined the military and I I became an MV22 Osprey pilot, and I've been flying. I began, I got my pilot license when I was 21 years old and I've been flying ever since and um, been flying with the military since 2014. Uh, and so the, the Osprey is a, uh, is a unique tilt rotor aircraft. So it's a bit of a transformer, so to speak. It flies like an airplane and it flies like a helicopter. And in route to becoming an Osprey pilot, we all of all military or uh, Marine Corps pilots have to be trained in, helicopter flying as well as fixed wing flying. So it was a unique pipeline to get there and it's been a lot of fun. The mission of the aircraft is it's an assault support aircraft. So we are bringing troops to the fight, so to speak. And um, I got about two more years in the Marine Corps and then I'm gonna be transitioning back to, to the uh, civilian sector. And the last thing I'm, I'm gonna hold, I wanna tell you guys about the, uh, the golden ticket, uh, but I'll, I'll talk about that after we get done with the questions so thank you I'll turn it over to you yeah awesome so just first question maybe can you tell us about what a mechanical engineer is and really how you got into that field or where your passion or interest for engineering or more specifically mechanical engineering really started yeah sure so uh, first off what is mechanical engineering it's a it's a very broad engineering discipline um, it covers a, a very, very wide scope of, of, of discipline. So anything from like in a household, you got uh, the heat, heat pump system that could be mechanical engineering all the way to in aircraft, the um, engine, designing the engine, designing the mechanics of any, any facet of that aircraft, there's going to be um, a portion of mechanical engineering involved. So it's, I look at it as the opportunity to be creative and do that in a very technical manner and bring something from an idea to life. And as a mechanical engineer, we, we can help design the product, the actual product that we're trying to produce. And we can also be in, involved with many areas in route of that product from an idea stage to it being delivered to someone's door. So the manufacturing processes, um, the certification processes if if the product requires that and um so it, like i said it's a very broad discipline so at uh i actually had no plans to be a mechanical engineer i uh i started out wanting to be a construction worker i didn't want to go to college i enjoyed being very hands-on i like creating things building things so as i finished my senior year in high school and began to open my eyes to the future and 
opportunities that that may lay ahead, I realized that uh, getting a uh, a college degree was essential to those stepping stones that I that I had set out for myself. So from there, I quickly I didn't take uh, the SAT prep courses. I didn't do anything like that. I just on a whim went and took the SAT. I scored marginally well and jumped into a a school called uh, Lander University, also in uh, in Greenwood, South Carolina. So it, when I was at uh, at Lander, I was a mechanic or a, a uh, mathematics major. They didn't have mechanical engineering. I decided I wanted to transfer to Clemson. So in the process of trying to figure out how I could get to Clemson, I had to pick a major, and I hadn't even thought of mechanical engineering. It was something I didn't know very much about, but I felt as a younger uh, guy, I, I thought about doing some sort of some form of art. I like drawing. I like creating. And so when somebody spoke to me about mechanical engineering, it sounded like an opportunity to marry my creativity and artistic ability with with something um, less abstract and more tangible. And so I jumped right into it and I had no idea that I was stepping into a very, very difficult program. And I just dug deep and, and got through it. So that's that's how I stumbled into it. Awesome. And then were there any real uh, prerequisite requirements for getting into that field or, or field of study? I would say there are, it's more of a baseline uh, aptitude. So at Clemson, you have to meet the general standards to get into Clemson University. And if I'm not mistaken, the mechanical engineering program at the time had a, had a GPA requirement. Uh, I believe out of high school and maybe even at, for transfer students. So when I left Lander University, I was fortunate enough to do pretty well. I had a rough first semester because uh, I, I didn't even realize I want to go to college. So there was a transition period from a, a young person's mindset focused on the wrong things and then refocusing. So I had a, kind of a, a rough semester and then I got it together. And I, I think I left Lander with maybe like a 3-3. And then I went to Clemson. Um, with that, with that GPA. So other requirements, I don't recall any other requirements. I think it's, if you, if you, are they still doing um, the SAT? Is that still a standard for, to get into college? Yeah, pretty much. But uh, now that coronavirus has happened, a lot of the colleges are making it test optional because a lot of the test centers have been canceled. Ah, got it. Well, it's a, that's an opportunity then, an opportunity to, to get into some schools. And really, really more focusing on your education, can you speak to what role it has played in your career and how, and really your success and how important it is to go to a good school and get really good grades? So the question is, what role did education play in my success? Mm -hmm. Is that what I'm hearing? Okay. So at, at Clemson, I, uh, the mechanical engineering program was, was very challenging and one, a couple classes that stand out were the thermodynamics class. That was that was pretty rough. The, I think the second physics class. Those were tough, tough semesters for me. And you, it's easy to get lost in the tasks in each course. So, for example, if you're in aerodynamics and you're digging into Bernoulli's equation, for example. It is important to understand that concept, that theorem or that theory in, in, it, in its entirety. But 
the bigger picture is the university Clemson was teaching me how to think, te teaching me a thought process, how to, how to work through problems. And that is the, the, the core importance. And additionally, when I was in college, I definitely focused on grades. I, I did fairly well. I think I finished maybe like a three, two, something like that. I mean, I wouldn't say it's fairly well, but good enough for what my objectives were, but I also spent a lot of time networking. So I was a part of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, as well as the, the student machine shop. And I, I was closely working with one of the professors there. So the education, learning how to think was a very, very important piece of it. And then the other piece was networking, leveraging relationships and, and not just networking, but networking with an eye towards connecting to industry. So through mechanical engineering, or sorry, through the American Society of Mechanical Engineering, I was doing things much like yourself. I was talking to industry professionals and it was allowing me to explore many opportunities and then also establish a contact in those industries or companies or you know whatever the, the uh, event that we were holding at the time. So learning how to think and networking. Awesome. And then um, in college, maybe can you speak to some of the things that really helped to prepare you for your first few jobs? The, the professional networking through ASME probably prepared me the, the most because what it allowed me to do is have interviews, unofficial interviews, much like what we're doing here with very, um, top performers and, and this kind of ties into my final point, the uh, golden ticket, but it, it allowed me the opportunity to figure out who I wanted to be professionally without being evaluated. So I could, I could, um, it's a bit of a crash course or, or you know, a, a trial run. And so working with industry professionals as a college student, discussing career opportunities and seeing how they paralleled my classes and what takeaways I could get from my classes to industry. That was, that was the biggest thing. And sp the specific takeaways from classes, spoiler alert, there's not that many. It's it, you're, you're learning to use your resources to problem solve. Some of the fundamentals for sure are, are some of your basic, uh, math, physics, engineering, the, those baseline courses, you're going to use those. But I mean, I haven't, I haven't touched differential equations since, um, I haven't looked at the laws of thermodynamics, you know, so it, it's, it's the process. It's teaching yourself the discipline and learning where to go to, to find the answers to the questions and, and how to arrive on those answers. Awesome. And then, um, maybe looking at your time with Lockheed and Martin Aeronautics, can you speak to what your responsibilities were and maybe what the most important skills you used were there? Yeah. Um, so that one I did as a, as an intern, I was still, I was still in college at Clemson and I stumbled into that position kind of similarly to how I did mechanical engineering. I grew up around flying my dad uh, was a pilot for a lot of years, so was my grandpa. And when I heard about uh, Lockheed Martin at a, at a co-op 
Do you guys still have the co-op programs? I think so. So basically it's a program that teams the college with, with certain companies and the companies will come in and kind of do speed interviews with a bunch of different students and then they'll, they'll recruit some interns. So I had done that and I heard of Lockheed Martin. I knew very little about them. I knew that they did aerospace, but I thought, you know what? I like airplanes. Sure. I'll give it a shot. And that was kind of the beginning of it. When I went to Lockheed, I was working at the Donaldson Center Airport in Greenville, South Carolina. We were working on, this is a lot of years back here, but uh, we were working on the uh, P3 Orion program and the C-130. There was a C-130, I don't know if it was a gunship, but it was a C-130 program. And it was a, basically a military aircraft would come back to Lockheed Martin and they would receive an upgrade package. And this upgrade package could have been avionics, it, it, at Lockheed, at this particular branch, I was focused on a, an avionics upgrade package, but it could be other things. It could be weapon systems and that kind of thing. So my role was, um, I was working, I believe, in installing a, a collision avoidance system, a TCAS is what military flyers call it, a TCAS system, and I believe the C-130. And so we were taking electrical avionics boxes that had some size and weight and we had to package them in the airplane in a suitable manner that could handle the g-loading um, in all directions so and and in designing that we had to run stress analysis and loading tests and that kind of thing to see if the box the structure that we built to hang the box in the aircraft was going to hold the the device through the, all the regimes of flight. Um, so that was, it was a, you know, a technical design, making sure it would handle the load as well as a little bit of an ergonomics game. Where can it fit in the airplane so that folks can maneuver around it and, and do their jobs in the aircraft. So that was my role there. And what tools, if you, my assumption is most mechanical engineering students, um, are probably pretty savvy with CAD, you know, SolidWorks computer assisted drafting is what we used to call it. 3D modeling, I guess, is more formal now. That is so, so important. It's like using Microsoft Word. It's, it is your foundation to visualize, model and create. And so I came in there, they had the, the program called CATIA. I hadn't learned that program, but I understood 3D modeling and I hit the ground running and I was able to model things. And a lot of the older folks that were not so savvy with 3D modeling, they would come knock on my door and ask me to do various things to help them. And that helped me not, not only complete my task because I was good at what I was doing for myself, but it allowed me to gain exposure to parallel projects that were going on around me. So 3D modeling is huge. That was a big tool at that job. Awesome. And then comparing uh, your internship at Lockheed and Martin, can you speak to your position at Parker Airspace and how that differed and maybe what different skills you used and how maybe the responsibilities differed? So Parker Airspace, I went in as a manufacturing, more of a manufacturing engineer. We were focused on manufacturing fuel systems for turbine engines. And I was there for three summers, I believe, probably around two years in total. And again, an internship co-op kind of thing. 
my the most prominent project that I had was I was working on the the F-35, the Joint Strike Fighter, the fighter jet there, the engine that went in that aircraft, and not the engine, but the fuel systems that went in that engine. So we were, I was specifically involved with the spray bars, which is a, it's a device that goes in the back of the afterburner, it goes in the afterburner of the engine, and it looks like a metal tube, and it dumps a lot of fuel into the engine. It, and it does it in a spray pattern that's conducive for combustion or for, for lighting off the afterburner. So my role in that was developing all the manufacturing tooling to get it from all the way through the manufacturing process. So there was several machining processes, welding processes. So you had like a, like a base housing and some tubes would get welded into the side, which were the inlet tubes for the fuel to come into the housing. And then the spray bar tubes would get uh, brazed or welded into there, into the housing. And then the, I believe the tubes had something called an EDM. Uh, it's a, it would, it would burn holes in the tube to port it so that the fuel could flow out. And in that, I had to design fixtures for, for those things as well as pressure testing. It had to, once we did a process, we had to then verify that, for example, if we did a weld, we had to verify that the weld was was hermetically sealed or, you know, there's no leak path. And so there are several fixtures involved with that. And then the coolest one was the the final acceptance gauge. It was it was a more of a envelope gauge that made sure that it fit within the maximum length width. Uh, constraints. So this gauge was, was very heavy and it was very precise and it would check the measurements that we were supposed to build, basically check the specifications that we were to build to. We would check that with various, uh, we call them go, no go gauges. That's a, that's a very big portion of manufacturing engineering is the, the tool, the, the acceptance gauges that I'm speaking of, but, um, it, yeah, anyway, we put the thing in there put the spray bar in the uh, fixture and it would check all the measurements. And then that was its last stop before the part would be shipped to the customer, which I believe was General Electric or Rolls Royce. And then they, the engine manufacturer would take the spray bar, put it in the engine. So my, my device was the last thing it saw before it went live in an engine. So that's pretty cool as a, as a 20 year old, I think is when I was working on that. That's awesome. Um, and yep. then maybe can you offer some suggestions or words of wisdom to aspiring mechanical engineers? Yeah, I can. That's, I'll tell you about the golden ticket. Uh, let me move my screen here. So the golden ticket concept is, is the opportunity to come into a new role. So if you're a new engineer and you're, land is sitting at your first internship or maybe even your first job right out of, out of uh, college, you have this grace period where you're perceived as a young inquisitive mind and you can ask no wrong questions. There are no bad questions, right? We hear that in school and that's true up until a certain point. So as you develop as a professional, you are 
it, it's, it happens gradually. There's no, there's no specific uh, time when this happens. In my opinion, at around 25 to 26, this grace period that you have, this golden ticket expires. And you don't know when it's going to expire. But what you have to do is seize the opportunity to be a young, inquisitive mind working with professionals far senior to you, guys that are 40, 50, 60 years old, that have a wealth of knowledge, and you ask them as many questions as you can. They can there's no dumb questions, and they will not only will they appreciate your inquisitiveness, but they will think that you are the most outstanding person that they're working with. And you have to take advantage of this opportunity because when it, when that ticket expires, it's a rough road. You are, you are then expected to know these answers. And when you ask the questions, you're criticized, you're judged, you're viewed as incompetent. And so at champion aerospace, I was, I didn't know that I had the golden ticket, but I kind of understood the concept. I was walking around at this company as a, like I said, like a 21 year old, maybe 22 and walking around the plant, knocking on everybody's door. I would walk in and say, you know, Hey, my name's Ross. Uh, I wanted to see what you do. And I would jump into nearly every person's job and ask what it is that they do. And it worked well. So I learned everything about the company, but, I took that so far as I went to the, the president of the company, the, the CEO president, and did the same thing, knocked on his door and walked right in, introduced myself and asked him what he did and what is his role in daily operations. And as a 35 year old, there's no way you could do that. You would be, you would be asked to leave. Um, there's a, uh, there's social norms and that just doesn't quite fit. But as a kid, you can do whatever you want. So take advantage of that uh, golden ticket, leverage it and make as many connections as you can with that golden ticket. So for example, the guy I knocked on the, the president's door and we formed a relationship that I otherwise never would have formed if I had not taken advantage of this opportunity. Awesome. That, that's a really good concept. And then just last question before we go into the student questions. Um, maybe what courses or clubs should students partake in? Um, yeah, what is the typical path that a successful mechanical engineer takes? Hmm. I found success in leaning into pretty much every obstacle that I ran across taking the challenging courses and figuring out a way to get through it and persevere. And I think it's because of what I mentioned in the beginning, you're, you're learning how to survive, learning how to think and survive in a very technical world. So I was outclassed in some of these classes. Uh, I believe I wasn't the smartest man in the room, not even close, probably on the bottom side and just hanging on for dear life to make it through. But pushing myself into those challenging situations required me to latch on to guys that were in these classes that were the front runners and form relationships with them and learn how to work as 
in teams. I'm not a big, I don't particularly like large teams, but small groups I'm, I enjoy. And I think it helped me to know what I didn't know and understand how to extract the information that I needed to gain the knowledge that I needed to know. So half the battle, there's some folks out there that don't know what they don't know. If that, if that makes sense. So if you don't know what you don't know, that's a problem. But then if you do know, then you have to figure out how to get it, get what you need. And I was able to go, all right, I can't figure this out, but that guy can, and he can help me. And I'd walk up to him and introduce myself and say, I need help. And we would form a bond. And, and not only that, I was learning a ton, learning a ton about the discipline at hand and, and learning a ton about life. Awesome, yeah, so thank you so much for answering our questions here at BC. And we'll move on to the student questions now. First of which sure. is, how important is networking? How do you properly network? And what skills did you use for networking? How do you properly network? Hmm. I think it starts with, you gotta have, you gotta have a goal in mind. You gotta, you gotta know what you want, for one. And it, it might sound a little shady that maybe a bit manipulative, but it's not. You have to know what, what you're trying to accomplish, know who can get you there, and then be genuine in the moment when interacting with the person that has the, the, the keys to the door you're trying to unlock. So in you know, in ASME, when I was the president of that, I, I was more doing kind of what you're doing. I was trying to bring opportunities for the, the group. And that allowed me to have these repetitive interactions and, and learning how to work with professionals. But then once I kind of developed that baseline set of skills, some talking skills, uh, interaction, uh, people skills, so to speak, I then, um, I then started making the goals that I'm speaking of. So one of my biggest goals was getting to Icon Aircraft. That was a company that I had my my eye on. I liked the leadership there. The all those the leadership, the CEO, the CFO, they were great guys. I knew them personally. I knew that um that they would they would be great mentors. The company itself would be you know like a a target to chase and the folks that were there were all far superior in my mind where I, where I was at the time and wherever I wanted to be. It was just a lot of high quality individuals. And so to get there, it, it, it took tenacity and putting myself out there. And, and, and I know that sounds cliche, but you're not going to be able to network unless you, you get up and, you know, get out the door and start shaking hands and making phone calls. And um, so with that goal in mind, I, I knew the players of this company and I would strategically call them, contact them. Uh, oftentimes we're a little, we're a little distant from phone calls. Now it seems to be the more preferred method is, is emails and text message. But at the time I would pick up the phone and, and pretty much cold called people and ask them the goal, with the golden ticket in mind, I would ask them how they got where they are. How do I get the icon? What, what jobs are available? How do I get that job? And 
was just an animal about it and kept going and going and going until I, until I got what I, what I was aiming for. Awesome. And then next question from our students is what valuable life principles did you learn while facing adversity and challenges at school? There, I had this, I had this notion, well, there's a, there's a big moment. I was in a, I believe it was a differential equations class. There was a guy, I won't use his name in case he hears this, but there was a guy that was the A student. He got, not only did he get A's, I mean, he was nearly near perfection on every test, whether it's physics, math thermo fluid dynamics he just crushed it always and he always knew the answers every time if i ever needed a question he knew there was um there was a, a particular i believe it was a take-home test and i i think it was differential equations we were able to take this test home and i was in the library and because of my background and how i got to where I got, it wasn't because of raw intelligence. It was work ethic and tenacity and, and fighting for what it is that, that I wanted to get. I was very familiar and comfortable if I'm facing a problem and I had no idea how I was going to figure it out. That was a normal, very normal position for me because whether it was calculus I, I didn't take pre-calculus in high school i just didn't i wasn't i wasn't a performer when i got to college i had to teach myself i, I didn't take pre-calculus so i had to teach myself uh pre-calculus and, and jump in well over my head into a calculus class and that was where i learned how to struggle and thrive while struggling so back to the differential equation uh scenario here to this guy we'll call him mike um I go in and we're doing kind of collaborative discussions, a lot of the students, and I go over to Mike and Mike is distraught because he can't figure out this problem. He has met his match. He, he can't figure it out and he's such a perfectionist. He was visibly upset. There were tears in this guy's eyes. He was a 19 year old and he couldn't figure out how to solve this problem. And I, I remember thinking like, what, this is, that is, this is every day for me. Every day I walk into class, everything that professor says is a struggle. I have to go work at it. I have to go figure out what was said and keep fighting to, to grasp the material. And it was then that I realized that getting comfortable struggling, getting comfortable not knowing the answers is crucial to success. It doesn't matter who you are, how smart you are, you're gonna eventually run up against the problem that you can't solve, you don't know how to solve it, and you have to blindly go in the direction that you think is the best, be methodical, trust that you will figure it out, and that's how you solve the problem. And so, being comfortable struggling. Awesome. That's the takeaway. Yeah. Um, and then, how important is it to be creative as a mechanical engineer? You know, I, uh, I'm in my, I'm 
in my master's and uh, my MB, taking my MBA right now at, uh, at Chapel Hill. And we're talking about uh, creativity and, and the opposite lack of creativity. And I don't, for the longest time, because of, we often believe that our own thoughts are, are the best thoughts. <laughs> I thought that being a mechanical engineer, being any sort of engineer was about technical creativity. And I've now learned that it's not, there's, it can be, but there are so many disciplines of engineering that require folks to be just the opposite of creative. They have to follow a procedure, run a formula, crunch numbers in a specific way without creativity. You have to understand conceptually what it is that you're doing, but there's really no flexibility um, in crunching those numbers. So for example, like the basic kinematics equations in physics that we might learn that you're probably doing in, in high school, you, you don't, you're not creating anything. You're following a recipe. You're, you're using the equations as they were designed to be used. You're plugging in numbers and getting results. There's not a lot of creativity in that. So that's a long way of saying that creativity is very important if you are on the design side of things. Are, are you, is it a clean sheet of paper design, so to speak? Are you, are you creating the airplane like that I was talking about from scratch? Nothing exists and you're sketching it for the first time. That's when you're looking with your mechanical engineers are working with your industrial designers and really being creative. And then once the product is developed or designed rather with those creative juices, then it kind of takes some of the less creative guys that, uh, and it's not a slight if somebody's not creative, they're more detailed process driven folks. Those guys move in and start detailing the design, doing some of the more tedious things that the creative minds don't really care to do. And the less creative guys that are focused on details and processes and procedures, they don't want to do the creative side of things. So it works. The world needs all kinds, but it's not, it's not a problem if you're not a creative guy. And, and it's also, that's not to say that if you're currently not creative, you might become creative there, you know, things happen in life and your brain will change. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, then, how do you continue to enjoy mechanical engineering and really avoid burnout? So currently I'm not working as an engineer. I, um, I'm working, at, I'm a full-time pilot, but I just as recently as two weeks ago, I was designing a, uh, an electrostatic device for a friend and it's, it's kind of a, a bit of a dorky project, but I, I enjoyed it. Um, so how do I, I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm not, I don't live in engineering day in and day out anymore. I'm a pilot. So I'm trying to find ways to keep my creative engineering, uh, technical mind alive. Um, that said, when I was in it, I don't know that I really got burnout. And I think that's, that's important when you're selecting your career path. And that's not to say that you're never going to get burned out with what you do at all. But for the most part, I don't, I don't really remember feeling tired of, of the, the nature of the engineering that I was doing. And it was likely because of the lack of routine. It was something different when I was at Icon Aircraft and we were looking at the manufacturing process for the airplane. It was new problems to solve constantly. And there was so much 
to be created that I was working on the landing gear system one day, the exhaust system the next day, and then a, a tooling fixture to hold the wheel on the landing gear. And then I was looking at production flow through a big facility, looking at a 200,000 square foot warehouse. And where are we gonna put the break room? Where are we gonna put the bathroom? It, it was so diverse that I never felt myself um, burning out, but in the, in the, in the flying world, I do get burnout flying. And the way that I reignite the passion is I go rent a civilian airplane and I do something for fun and bring back the, the initial attraction to the discipline at hand. And so you can take that tool with you with, with engineering, whatever position you choose, However, if you go back to the beginning, to the point which that flame was lit and it doesn't light again, maybe you might look at something different. Awesome, yeah. Um, that's all the student questions we have for you today. So, I mean, yeah, thank you so much for just sharing your time, your lessons, and your really important stories with us. And we appreciate it here at BAC, and I'm sure the students that will view this later um, on any of our social medias will also appreciate what you've been able to share with us today. And I'm, sure. Yeah, and then for students, you guys are interested in hearing about more webinars, you guys can visit our website at www.virtualstudentexperiences.com. I mean, yeah, once again, just thank you so much for joining us here today, Mr. Epstein. All right. Well, thank you guys for your time. Awesome. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. All right.